You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison. That is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. There is Delium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same is it that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hidekel. That is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden and the Lord God commanded the man saying of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it for in the day that thou eatest thereof I shall surely die. And the serpent said unto the woman, He shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. And ye shall be as God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. The eyes of the both were opened. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Here's Basil and Gons. Hey everybody, and welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name's Basil. And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number three quarters of Way 275. Oh, math. <laughs> 75. 75. So... Well, we have one of our favorite guests back, and yeah. really we're not going to waste any time with like a formal introduction. If you want that, you can go check out episode number 46. We have Stan Dale back. How you yeah. doing, Stan? Hey, doing fine, guys. Good to talk to you this morning. Good to talk to you as well. You know, I'm pretty excited. I'm glad to have you back. You're now a veteran second timer. We will send you your pin in the mail. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. And I'm assuming, quite correctly, I believe, that you are just as excited as we are to be on the show. 
Oh, yeah. And it's not due to the coffee either. It's just real. <laughs> it's just, this is all Stan, people. I, on the other hand, and uh, am severely influenced by coffee right now. <laughs> but enough about me. How you been doing, Stan? You keeping busy, buddy? You know, uh, I have been. Um, about... Oh, late May, June this year, things started to speed up in my world, uh, just doing some research projects and stuff. And uh, since that time, uh, things haven't slowed down a bit. They've increased, and uh, my schedule is getting real full at the moment. I'm Good. sure. Have you been able to keep track of some of the strange uh, goings-on around the world with lots of weird sinkholes and, and Napa falling apart and, and uh, all the earthquakes and some of the things you're used to doing? Yes, I have, actually. Um, I, I get a lot of help from my research associates um, here in the United States and in Australia and Mexico and Europe. They they very kindly keep a track on things like quakes in the Azores that aren't widely reported. And uh, Iceland's problem, I've got Kim, she does that. i got a guy down in Australia named Fred, and uh, uh, he's more of the geophysicist type uh, looking at... Um, you know, global warming, ice cap melting, uh, sea level rises, uh, the physics of a, you know, spinning earth, that kind of stuff. And uh, so reports from these guys uh, uh, have caused me to put a few things on my show images page on my website. By the way, go to standeo.com, S-T-A-N-D-E-Y-O.com. And um, on that page on the right-hand side, there'll be a little blue microphone-looking thing. And there, you'll, next to it, you'll see Show Images. And click on that, and you'll be able to reference some of the things I'm going to reference here in the show about earth changes and other things. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, one of the kind of more pressing things are these sinkholes you were talking about because they're not only becoming sinkholes, they're becoming long fissures. Um, on the second row of the show images page in the middle, I have a, uh, a link to an article uh, and a photograph as well of um, a fissure that opened up in Hermosillo, uh, Hermosillo uh, on the eastern coast of the Baja in Mexico. Now, this fissure opened up this month, about a week or so ago, let's see, 20th, about uh, eight days ago now. Uh, and if you look at the photo, you can see water damage uh, above ground and to the left of that. So you can say, well, like the geophysicists are saying, well, it's very unusual, but it's probably caused by a subsurface of water flow. And that's why it cracked apart like that. It right. has never done anything like that before, but that's why they say it happened. And uh, It's big, too. It's it was, not yeah, look at the thing. size of it next to people. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's about six-tenths of a mile long and 25 feet deep. That's crazy. Uh, right across the road. Now, it, that's not a sinkhole. It's a fissure. And we've seen in the last two years something even longer than this. I think down in South America somewhere, I, I, re, I remember seeing that and forget the exact instance. But all these things, I do think, uh, are related. These sinkhole-type, fissure-type things are related to changes in the Earth's surface and the shape of the Earth. Now... What I'm going to say here is, uh, I'm going to wave my hands a lot because I don't have pictures of this, but um, I've been working on a paper for over two and a half years now uh, and illustrating it on how gravity really works. And Ooh. gravity is caused by spins or vortices, uh, you know, like, like, um, like a vortex, like a tornado if you, if you wish, but two of them end to end, in the, the medium of space. And space has mass. 
Now, gradually, the scientific, you know, mainland physics are becoming uh, uh, amenable to the idea that empty space is not empty. It's just very fine structure. And there's a spin in this, and, as, and there are a bunch of spins in it, like spin around a star, spin around a galaxy, uh, spin around a planet, spin around a moon. You know, and these spins in this invisible fluid of space are what I call organizing gravitational forces. Hmm. Now, what that means is, like, if you take a, a clear glass of water and throw some um, some tea leaves into it, uh, or, or better yet, some sand and some pepper, white and black, and different different densities, and you stir up that glass of water and look at it, you'll see a vortex form right down the center and down to the bottom, and it will organize the sand, the white sand first, and then it'll organize after that the, the lighter pepper uh, waterlogged particles on top of that. And eventually the vortex will stop and everything will be left in a little, little mound at the bottom of the glass of water. This is like one half, like the northern hemisphere of a planet, a star, a galaxy. That kind of event happens in both the northern and southern hemisphere pointing at each other. And where that mound is, is where a planet forms, a moon forms, a star forms, a galaxy forms, a galactic cluster forms. All these things appear at this point to follow that rule. Even atoms and subatomic particles have spin. So, when you say, what gravity does Earth have? Well, Earth has the organizing gravitational force, which spins all the molecules that make up Earth into the center. And each atom that is clustered in the center gets organized so that its spin axis is a certain direction relative to the spin of the planet. Now, all those spins add up to the net gravitational force of the planet. Right. They have found when they've gone and looked at an asteroid, for instance, it's an odd potato shape or something, when the little satellite went around it, they would find gravitational variations like hot spots and low spots of gravity because that asteroid, is, of course, has cooled, and as it cooled, its atoms were clustered in, in alignments, and so they will make gravitational anomalies all over that asteroid because it's not in a, a, an organized spin any longer. It's frozen. Anyway, all that gets back to, in the center of that vortex of the, of the Earth's gravitational field, there's a spin in the fluid of space way down in the core. And if you were to cut that core right through the middle in a sectional slice, you would see a shape of kind of a lazy S looking, at, if you cut it through the equator and look at it from the top, you'd see a lazy S. And at the tips of that S on either side of the, uh, the planet would be slight bulges from the, the spin moment. Right. This is undergoing a change at the moment, and I'm talking not only from my hypothesis, but also from leaked reports from geophysicists working for the government that have recently come to light. Linda Moltenhauer reported one of her video interviews a couple months back, I think back in June. And this is, this is the issue. They're saying that the Earth's core has developed a kind of egg-shaped uh, shape. Uh, it's like a, uh, an elliptical uh, ellipsoid where it, those two ends of the S-curve I was talking about are bulging. And as this bulge moves around, it's creating havoc up on the surface of the Earth. Right. I think what we're seeing is like with a glass of water, things are slowing down, you know, with the particles. Okay, now, as that happens, this bulging is going to cause the Earth to actually expand again. 
It has done this once before, and I think within the last 4,500 years. And uh, the Earth is now 25% bigger in diameter than it was back then when we had Pangaea intact. And I think 25%. That was a- wow. Yeah. Well, see, look, um, the uh, uh, there there've been a number of reports. The um, HGO and or WGO and I forget whether it's W or HGO and anyway, the Atlas of Continental Displacement. Uh, this is mainstream physics, and he has he's put a, a very learned paper out about the fact that the continents of Earth will only fit together the coastlines and knit perfectly if you reduce the diameter of the planet from what it is now by twenty mm-hmm. percent, which means it expanded by twenty five percent from the original diameter. Sure. Now. He put that in, you know, standard millions of years and hundreds of millions of years for Pangaea to do all this. My only difference with that is I'm saying we had a catastrophic event 4,500 years ago uh, that, that split Pangaea apart. And, and I track this back with historical records in Samaria and in the book of Jubilees and in the book of Genesis. Accounts were given by somebody talking about the Garden of Eden and looking at rivers and where they were. When the continents were all together, and that means right. it had to be within human civilization period time for this to have happened, that Pangaea right. broke up, and that was around 4,500 years ago, right. you know, give or right. take a bit. Yeah. So, now, um, real, real quick, I, I don't want to move too far back here, so I just want to get this in. Now, you mentioned the spinning nature of gravity in space, and you, see, you likened it to the glass of water and the particles. Now, is that akin to saying that the gravity was there first and created the Earth? Or, um, because if I understand correctly, most modern scientists believe that the, the gravity comes after the mass is collected. Well, the organizing field came first. And it mm-hmm. gathered the particles together in the center. And at that point, then the particles started to polarize their spin axes. And the massive gravitational, the unified gravitational field of the Earth formed as it cooled. Got it. Okay. In fact, it's still molten down inside, so there are some variations there occurring now. Um, Have a look at the third line down in my show images page on the right. You'll see a picture of uh, its gravitational uh, strength map of the Earth. Looking at it. Now, you see that big blue spot there in the Indian Ocean? I see it. It's yep. very big and very blue. Okay, that's the only place on the planet where the gravitational field is so weak. Now, what happened, I'm, as I discussed in my Garden of Eden Discovery Lecture, is over in, uh, this is my opinion now, based on Pangaea and its formation, you know, the way it looked a long time ago. Over in the Gulf of Mexico, there was a, an impact by the Chicxulub meteor. And it was a shallow uh, impact, which sent a shock wave across inside the Earth, hit the core, spinning eastward, and bounced up into the blue spot you see there in the Indian Ocean. Mm-hmm. Because when that happened, India and Madagascar and Indonesia and Australia were all clustered together on the east coast and touching Africa, East Africa. Mm, the, right. the impact shoved the mass up to, to make the Himalayas and part of the, the mountains of Iran on the western side of Iran. Interesting. Um, and, and, and it is interesting because you can see it in the mud maps, you know, the uh, bathymetry uh, that Scripps Institute has just released. In fact, they sent it to me in, in uh, early July for me to use in my lecture because they hadn't even given it to Google Earth yet. And it, it just so specifically shows the mud map where India and, and uh, Africa were uh, attached. Now, it, it explains why the Himalayas have seashells on the top of it. 
because mm. they were once flat down there and got shoved up in this catastrophic impact. Mm. Right. Okay. And now, now the mass, the, the, the surface of the earth there, the mantle, is thinner because of everything getting shoved out of the way by the bulge that came from the impact shockwave of the Chicxulub on the other side of the planet. Right. Now, okay, that tells you that, you know, gravitational masses do exist here in the atom structures, not just in the organizing field. Right, And here yeah. they, they vary, you see. We've already varied gravity just by looking at that impact. So according to this map, if I went to the very bottom tip of India and weighed myself on a scale, that number would be lighter than if I went to, just looking at your map here, um, up in Norway, I would be heavier because of yep. the strong gravitation. You'd be about 0.25 pounds per hundred, uh, or say, say 0.25% right. uh, lighter. And so gravity is less there at the equator anyway, but here at this spot, you might be as much as, uh, let me just see what that is, 0.3. You might be as much as 0.5% lighter. So you're just doing calculations on the fly. <laughs> I was gonna, yeah, I was going to ask what the, what the discrepancy was, and there you go. You just got the equations right in front of you. My gosh, so prepared. Hey, okay. well, think about this, though. Uh, you talk about gravity being different. There is, on the calculated average at the equator, uh, gravity is 0.34% less than it is at the poles because of the flattening of the earth as it spins it's kind of it bulges at the equator right and uh back on that show images page up in the the top row in the um the second uh, image there you'll see what looks like an ice cap melting and uh, i got a note from one of my researchers down in, in uh you know from fred down in australia and he said look think about this this ice is melting to water but the sea level rise is not occurring so rapidly at the poles as it is at the equator why? Because the gravitational potential is less at the equator, things weigh less, and so with centrifugal force and, uh, you know, the gravitational weakening, the sea level rises to the uh, island states and, and any, any uh, coastlines that are on the equatorial region. Interesting. That makes total sense. And, you know, I've got two reports up there showing how rapidly the, the uh, ice is melting and how rapidly, you know, uh, the, the, the global warming is occurring. So this could be an anomalous, rather rapid uh, onset of uh, sea level rises, especially in the equatorial regions. So Fred said to me, okay, if you, if you understand that and agree with that, he says, what about this? That changes the distribution of mass pressure, you know, weight, across the Pacific and across the Atlantic and across all the land masses. It's putting more uh, weight up toward the northern regions and the equator are, are, are weighing less. But it's also shifting water down there, which, you know, you say, well, does that balance it or whatever? It's causing a tilting effect in both hemispheres. And he said, this may be what is causing the increase in earthquakes and volcanic activity because it's stressing all the major fault lines uh, into plate tectonic borders. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Well, I read that and I thought, dang, he's right. You know, that is right. Right. Yeah. And, the and it doesn't even have to be an expanding. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say that the waves out here on the coast of California are going crazy right now. So, you know, that can also be a part of the evidence, I suppose, of some of this going on. And some of those beachfront homes might be uh, yeah. underwater soon. Well, I, I don't know why anyone would, would build along U.S. Highway 1 up there overlooking the, the Pacific right on the edge of a, of a sand cliff. It's just uh, always escaped me as to why they would do that. But. <laughs> 
too much <laughs> money laying around. Oh, I guess it's probably just a temporary vacation home in the government <laughs> yeah. or something. I don't know, but um, it, it is a risk. And uh, I think that that, that my hypothesis, uh, agreeing with HGO uh, and the rest of them, uh, about the Earth expanding, uh, could well be seeing a second phase of expansion as the planet ages and loses uh, some of its um, um, its angular momentum, like its energy of spin. Right. And as that happens, it will start to expand, and that's why we're seeing these fissures and sinkholes open up. Right. Now, the fissures are really catastrophic things. Uh, they, they're uh, not as common as the sinkholes. And if you notice the sinkholes, they're, they're, they're basically round. And, and you can attribute them at the time to, okay, that was a broken water line uh, or, or a, a broken uh, aquifer, and so the water flooded in here and it made that hole sink. Sure. But what caused the relief of pressure to break a water line or to break an aquifer to do that? Yeah. And that's the expansion of the earth. And it's a uniform expansion to a degree. And that's why you have circular sinkholes in the majority instead of like long fissures. Right, right. So you're telling me that all of these sinkholes and fissures are not due to aliens tunneling underneath the crust of the earth? Gee, uh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> you mean there's actually like a semi-rational explanation for all this? Well, the majority of yeah. Uh, right. You and I both know that there's been a lot of tunneling activity over the last 50 years and getting Same more thing. and more advanced. But right. uh, they did have a collapse, oh gosh, what was it, 30 years ago in Florida, a sinkhole. And uh, they found large, you know, like 20-foot diameter rings of metal in it, you know. And right. I think that was probably part of a boring machine, that, uh, an experiment that failed or a tunnel that collapsed. But right. Well, it's like this new sinkhole thing, tunnel thing in um, Siberia. Is that one of these sinkholes from the Earth expansion, or is that something a little bit more complicated? Well, you know, until we get some hard data from that, I, I can't answer, um, you know, with authority. I just don't know. Got but, it. Um, Boy, there's just so many things going on at the moment. It's hard to keep up. <laughs> focus. You got to focus. Ah, well, look. Okay, talking about fishers, right okay. now up in Iceland, uh, underneath Iceland, there's a very peculiar um, dog leg in the Atlantic Ridge. It turns back on itself right underneath Iceland, underneath that whole volcanic field that's hot now. And overnight, from uh, the Bartabunga, um, uh, uh, volcano up to the Aksa uh, volcano, which is just northeast of it, a long magma plume has formed, shoving you know, uh, lots of miles up into the second volcano. And they're suggesting this may open up a rift of magma fire right through that area of Iceland. Not just Ooh. a single volcano, but a long rift of fire. You know, and magma coming up. Wow. This would be interesting. It would show a lot of, throw a lot of ash and dust in the air. But it might avert a, a catastrophic thing like, uh, you know, uh, Krakatoa or something by relieving the, the magma pressure all along a long fissure. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's melting ice there at the moment, and uh, water flows are a risk to the people. They've been moving people out to here for the last week, evacuating them. But that's just another sign of, of the Earth expansion. Right. Now, it's, I find it interesting that it's happening so quickly. You know, modern scientists like to... I feel like it's kind of a defense mechanism, you know? If you put enough millions of years in between your uh, theories, it makes it a little bit more palatable. But what we're seeing now is very rapid. 
Well, you know, I'm not saying the Earth is only 6,000 years old, but I don't think right. it's billions of years in the making. Um, well, even in the evidence that, you're, that we're talking about now, this is all semi-recent, at least. Well, it's what, this, this view of uh, archaeological or geological history of the Earth is called catastrophism versus gradualism. Right. And the gradualists, of course, are the ones that talk in millions and hundreds of millions of years. Using dating techniques... And there are about 15 major dating techniques you can use, and none of them agree on the age of the Earth. I mean, not even close. Right. So um, our yardstick is not absolute and not trustworthy at this point in time. And, you know, uh, I hope the good Lord someday comes back and tells everybody how you know, old it really is. But it'll, it'll be in relative years anyway, because the spin rate of the planet makes the years, right. uh, length of years change, and the spin rate of the sun, and blah, 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 you know. Yeah. It's tough confusing stuff man. <laughs> absolutely uh, yeah i mean uh, some of the stuff that gerald schroeder uh, i don't know if you're familiar with his work about the age of the earth and in conjunction with the speed of light and uh you know a 24-hour period presumably what appears to be six thousand years ago from here uh, he basically reconciles the whole 15 billion year universe to a six thousand or around six to ten thousand year universe idea so um, does he quote? Does he quote um, Barry Satterfield's work on the speed of light? You know, I, I I think some of his Barry Satterfield stuff has come a little bit I don't know later or in conjunction with, but I think Gerald Schroeder in particular is uh, a Jewish uh, rabbi, and he he cites Maimonides's work and stuff like that. So I, I I haven't actually looked at his stuff in a while, so I'm trying to do this off the top of my head, and I'm losing ground quickly but <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that's all right but the, the speed of light is is a variable and it varies with the density of space and if we have an expanding universe and the density of space is uh diminishing as we expand then the speed of light will change and it will slow down right so at back the closer you get to the big bang situation it, you know and I, I'm, I don't have any trouble with that I mean God spoke the word and the word uh, you know and everything formed from that it's like a waveform a complex waveform induced into uh, a still fluid of space right. and, and the swirls that form create galaxies and planets and atoms and that kind of stuff now hey, God spoke and bang there yeah is. yeah and, and actually uh, looking at the spin of galaxies and, and stars and stuff you can almost say that God was right-handed you know I mean it, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's fun. But um, the, the the issue of, of space and the density of space and the energy density of space definitely affects the speed of light. And if you take things back closer and closer to the Big Bang, um, light travels so much, so many times faster than it does now that aging uh, that we date it with is all up to spout. Calculating distances between planets right now is inaccurate because of the changes in the density of space between us and whatever we're measuring. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's uh, we have to to open our minds as scientists and try to to defend both positions until we can see which one wins. Right. And, uh, sadly, though, the Cathedral of Science today says our way is the way. We're not going to go back and change our fundamentals to even consider your hypothetical short-term Earth, because it's just madness. Right. And by doing that, of course, we lose the valuable scientific, um, you know, uh, balance of, of, of analyzing the, the, the data, you know, to be a true scientist. Right. 
Yeah, well, it's difficult because what you're saying, what you mentioned at the beginning of the show, is that space is not so much complete emptiness, as is assumed in most cases, but actually does have some sort of uh, fl- fluffy filler of some kind. <laughs> and that, that, I mean, the whole thing of your expanding universe uh, creating a dip in the cosmic pressure or density um, is really predicated on that theory. It's right? a fluid or hydrodynamic uh, theory of right. cosmology. Exactly. Um, and yeah, so you, you got to subscribe to that very fundamental aspect before you can even think about the speed of light changing. Yep, yep. There you go. And, and then, of course, look, they're calling empty space that has got dark energy and dark matter. We've suddenly right. discovered where the missing parts of the universe are. Well, yeah. duh, call it what you want to. It's there. Yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, let's let's dive into some more specifics about the Garden of Eden. But even before we do that, you know, I was uh, I was able to live stream uh, the presentation from Pikes Peak uh, just a month or so ago, and um, I know a lot of people listening to the show was were able to do that as well. Um, but uh, you know, we just wanted to touch real quick on your your thoughts. A little bit side sidetrack here, but. Uh, your thoughts on Gary Stearman stepping down from Prophecy in the News, just your experience with him and with Prophecy in the News. Do you have any uh, comment or thoughts on that? Well, uh, I haven't talked to Gary or to uh, Bob Ulrich since they uh, stepped down. I, I don't know why they did, but um, um, I know that at the conference, uh, both of them uh, had just almost been worked to the bone. I, when you want to see a tired man, you'd look into the eyes of Gary and Bob. They were absolutely exhausted. And I don't know how many was it been three or four major conferences they've held in the last couple of years, and it's just taken its toll. I know that uh, they were wondering whether they would want to do it again. It's just so much pressure on them. Mm-hmm. Where they are now, what they're doing, I don't know. Um, I am working with um, the uh, with uh, Sam Miller, who was the uh, technical guide and, and did the recordings of the lectures, and is preparing the DVDs and. Um, I am writing an article for the Prophecy in the News magazine at the request of uh, Linda Church, which is, you know, fair enough. But at this point, I have you know, really no other knowledge about what's happening than you do. Okay, cool. Yeah, I just wanted to, to drop it in to see, you know, where you were with that and, and your, your experience with Prophecy in the News and, and things of that nature. But, but diving right back into the Garden of Eden here, where did all of this begin, this quest for Eden? What was your thinking going into trying to locate the Garden of Eden? Uh, a moment of madness? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, back in May, uh, Bob and Gary asked me if I'd like to speak at the conference. And I, shot, I thought, well, okay, good. And a couple of weeks went by and they said, well, we need a, a list of the topics you're going to talk about. And I thought, okay, that's a good idea. What am I going to talk about? UFOs, uh, the Great Deception. Uh, that's, I've talked about that a lot, but okay. So I wrote back and said, okay, I, I think I'll be doing something on that, but I'll, I'll let you know in a bit. So I started uh, grabbing my notes and uh, looking at, um, at Google Earth, uh, you know, uh, for locations of various places, uh, you know, distances from Jerusalem or whatever. And I stumbled across some of my old uh, links, you know, KMZs in, in the Google Earth. And I thought, oh, that was when I was, you know, researching uh, the Garden of Eden. And I grabbed my Vindicator Scrolls book and I said, well, I'd, I'd found the Garden of Eden. It was in the, the Afar Triangle, you know, back in 89 when I wrote the book. And then I looked again at Google Earth, and uh, I thought, oh, wait a minute. If I can get better bathymetry, you know, 
the, the topography of the of the ocean floors, I might be able to you know uh, say something about that. So I looked around and talked to the Scripps Institute over in California there, and I said, "Look, can I? If you got a more updated uh, uh, mud map for the uh, suboceanic uh, you know, sea floors, so I can I can check for old riverbeds." Sure enough, they did, and they hadn't given it yet to Google Earth. They gave me a private download, and so I put that in, and, and of course now I'll be able to, to put it on the CD-ROM for other people to use too. Anyway, I looked at that, and I realized I'd made a huge mistake. I, uh, th the Garden of Eden in in the Afar Triangle there did not work. Uh, even though two or three rivers seemed to go there, one of them I thought was the... Uh, the Euphrates going up the Red Sea, and it didn't work. It just can't turn a corner at nine degrees like that. So I thought, well, uh, uh, gee, I'll have to make a note to correct that. Anyway, I, I thought, well, heck, while I'm on it, I'll just try to see, you know, where, what river could have gone and where it would have gone. And I had to immediately discount the Red Sea as, uh, as the, uh, the path of the Euphrates. If it came out through the Djibouti area, it had to come out through the northern area. And... Uh, the more I dug into it, well, this was back in, in late June, I thought, you know, okay, okay, I, I can see that. I can see how Euphrates might have gone there, but okay, so it came up into the, the Great East African Rift that was a water source, and if Eden was in the Afar Triangle, and anyway, I started doing all these comparisons, and one by one, things didn't work right. And I thought, well, now, hold on a second. Uh, where does the water in the Great East African Rift come down into... Ethiopia, where, where does that come from? So I backtracked that up and over some magma intrusions and stuff uh, to an altitude of about 10,000 feet up in northern Tanzania there, what used to be called Tanganyika. And uh, I found a big area, like 330,000 square, uh, 330, square miles that's encased in kind of a ring of um, volcanic uh, uplifts and mountains and things up there from 10 to 14,000 feet high, which of course gave a tremendous head to the water flowing down into you know, sea level, wherever it went. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, I thought, well, could this be the Garden of Eden up here? Uh, and I spent probably a week tracing, you know, tens of thousands of riverbeds and whatever around there and, and realized, no, this doesn't fit the description in Genesis. It's, you know, we've got to have certain things to the east of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden's going to be in the east of a place called Eden, and there got to be four rivers headwater there. And, you know, I thought, well, I was about to give up. And I, I had an anomaly in, in one of the, uh, the river flows there up in the Tanganyika area around that big, huge, big oval area. You can see it if you look at any topography map of, of Africa. You'll see a kind of an egg-shaped thing there. And I, this anomaly was a, a, a bunch of serious riverbeds that came out of the southeastern edge of that, that egg-shaped caldera-looking thing where, where Lake Victoria is. And I realized, well, wait a minute. There are rivers coming out of this, this high range here. It's only, you know, about 140 square miles or so and. There's one, two, three, four, five volcanoes there. Well, that's odd because in a book, uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, the Torah, it says it, and in fact, even in the prophecies of the, of the Old Testament, it says that Satan walked among the, the stones of fire of Eden. Mm -hmm. And I thought, fire, heat, volcanoes, okay. So then I got serious about saying, well, what about this cluster of little volcanoes here and this caldera, this, or sorry, this uh, collapsed volcano in the middle of it? Uh, do the rivers come from there? Well, actually, the rivers come from a spot in that cluster 
that feeds down into that, that crater that's about 100 square miles in diameter and uh, to another kind of higher holding tank of water where three riverbeds come out and then fourth one out the other side. And I thought, four rivers of Eden. So I looked for the water source then. And by this time, I'm starting to get excited. And, you know, I'm thinking, wow, I, could this possibly be? It's a walled-in area, a garden, gone Aden. Uh, a walled-in area has to have walls all around it. And, of course, this is the only collapsed volcanic crater in the world that's still intact. Mm-hmm. And it's, got, it's, it's walled in. And I started uh, looking up in the higher range up there above it to see where the water came from. And I found a two um, uh, like uh, water emission areas, like a fountain of water would bl- flow up through it like, like, a, like Old Faithful, except it was a lot of water that just gushed up out of there. Even today it comes up. And uh, this water source came up from underneath the volcanic uh, volcanic uh, formation that formed the Garden of Eden complex. It came up from the earth underneath it, and it just spouted out. I mean, just shot out, and it, it uh, made grooves in the, in the dirt there, in, in the volcanic ash and stuff, which are there today. You can see it was a huge amount of water. You know, I estimate probably 50 million gallons a second. It was huge. And uh, I thought, right, I've got a water source, but... The Bible says the water that fed Eden came uh, out of Eden. And I went back to the Hebrew and it says, it came up out of Eden like a tree is what the word looks like. And so a thing that a geyser that was shooting water up would shoot out fingers of water like uh-huh. a tree limb. Yeah. And I thought, dang, this is it. This, it and boy, the hair in the back of my neck went, Stwing, you know, like that. <laughs> I said, Holly, come down here and look at this. And she looked at it and she said, wow, look at my arms. They're all goosebumpy. I said, yeah, that's it. And so then I realized I would have to, to trace, you know, the, uh, um, the four rivers exactly. And uh, uh, to do that, I put the earth all back together again. You know, the continents all touching in Pangaea. Mm-hmm. And when I did, wow. I mean, as I showed in the lecture, the Euphrates is spoken of in the Old Testament as the great river, the river Euphrates, uh, like river, river. And that was the way the ancients used to say, it's a river in pieces. It's, it's a plural form. Hmm. And um, I then found that uh, the, 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 the branch of uh, the water that came out of the Garden of Eden could either have been through the Nile route or through the Red Sea route into what is now the Mediterranean and along the east coast of the Mediterranean or like the west coast of, of, the, of the Levant, you know, of uh, Israel and uh, Lebanon and all that. And I looked at the mud map and sure enough, there was a riverbed grooved in all the way up into Turkey and then fell down into the Persian Gulf from there. And wow. that was the river Ephrat, uh, the Euphrates, which is now broken because the landmass is pulled apart and it's, you know, the pieces of it aren't connected. So then I thought, right, okay, what about this, um, you know, the Gihon and, uh, uh, and you know, um, Hidikel, you know, the Tigris and and the Gihon. And I had to trace where Cush was, the land of Cush. And King James, when they translated uh, the Four Rivers of Eden uh, portion of Genesis, they said this, this river goes around Ethiopia. And I looked in the Hebrew, it didn't say Ethiopia at all, it said Cush with a K. So I started looking for... Uh, names in the Middle Eastern area of countries that had places and names in it with a K or a Q, like Kush, Kish, Kosh. And I found over 120 of them without even blinking an eye, right. mainly in Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan, but some of them also in India. 
So I realized, okay, that river had to go around either Iran and part of Afghanistan and Pakistan or over into India. And looking at the mud map that I got from the Scripps Institute, I found right. Okay, it split right at the Indus River uh, entrance. And that river most probably went around all of, of uh, where the Brahmaputra is in India, at the base of the Himalayas, and around and out to the sea, when it was connected to, Af to uh, Africa and to Madagascar. Once I did that, then I realized, okay, this river was here. The Tigris went up into the left branch of what you can see in the mud map, up into the mountains uh, of western Iran, and fell down into uh, the plains of Shinar, or, you know, the Persian Gulf Plains. So we had uh, today the remnants of the Euphrates and the Tigris, which came in from the top and down, and because they went up and around. So I had three rivers, and then had to find the last one, which um, if I knew that Tanzania, you know, Tanganyika there was where the garden was, I had to find a fourth river, but I'd only found three streams out through that, that, that path over the Great East African Rift. So right. I started looking and found the fourth one coming uh, east. Uh, out of the, the the bowl that held all the water, where the, the rivers, you know, which was feeding the rivers, and that river went split and went around um, uh, Mount Kilimanjaro uh, to the uh, to the uh, north side, and another river which was south of there, you know, a few miles, a few hundred miles, and they they formed a circular path that chewed off Madagascar from um, it separated Madagascar from Africa and from India as well, because of the river going around India. Now, once I had that, then I realized, okay, now, can, uh, is there anything else that will support this? And I started looking at King Solomon, because in finding where Havila was, which is rich in gold, and that was Tanzania, when finding that, you find it's next to Ophir. And Solomon's gold source, one of the three major ones, was in a place called Ophir, settled by Ophir, you know, uh, descendants of uh, Yakitan, or Joktan in English. And uh, it had to be next to Havilah and next to Sheba, which was, you know, most probably Ethiopia. And I did find it there in Madagascar, and I found the gold fields, uh, which are like, uh, like one of the prophets said, they're like the dust of the rivers and the, and the rocks of the rivers of gold. And, and that was, and that is what it is in the northeastern part of Madagascar. There's a, a, a cove, a bay where you can park your ships, and a lot of ancient traders did from Arabia and Israel and India. And there, the mountain structures are rich with gold in, in rock formations, which have been leached out over the years down into riverbeds full of sand and gold. And you could literally just scoop up gold dust from these rivers, pan it out, put it on your ships, and come back with 450, uh, well, like uh, the equivalent of about uh, 20,000, 22,000 pounds of gold in, in oh a ship. Oh, my gosh. And um, then I also found, uh, you know, there were there were mysteries like um, looking at Solomon's gold mines. Uh, he uh, he had sources in Tarshish and he had sources in Parvaim. And when you look up in history, they say we don't know where the the gold mine uh, gold source for Solomon was in Parvaim. We, we don't know where that place is. We don't know where the Tarshish is. But if you go to the root words in Hebrew. And you look at Parvaim, for instance, you see it. Parva is something, and Im is masculine plural. So I looked in India, in the Indus River Valley, which originally was connected over there, but not in the time of Solomon. Solomon must have known where the Garden of Eden was because he was able to track this back. In the Indus River Valley, 
the religion of the area of the region there, the um, Mahabharata, uh, was recorded uh, periodically over 200 years or so. They would re-record it on palm leaves, and they called these books of the Mahabharata the Parva, or books, Parva. So if Solomon's ships went over there, they would have seen these Parva, and it was the land of the Parvas in English, but it's the land of the Parvaim in Hebrew. So he got gold from that area, and yes, gold is found in that area of India, plus another one down across where Madagascar used to uh, connect to it. Right. So then where was Tarshish? Where was the third one? Because out of all these, he got 666 talents of gold, or around 39,000 pounds of gold Ooh. in a three-year period when the ships came in. Well, Tarshish, the, the, the scholars tried to put that somewhere in the Mediterranean, and I agree. It's tar Shish. Now, uh, the, the shish is like um, in Spain and, um, and um, oh, I forget the name right across from Spain there in North Africa. Anyway, uh, these two countries are the only ones that had the, the, the notoriety of making these glass bowls with a stem coming out so you could smoke the dope. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it, uh, the Tarshish means, you know, that the, the shisha is the, the bowl and the tar, you know, the tar part of the Tarshish is like, like to get high in essence, to, um, to be disoriented, uh, you know, from uh, reality type thing. And so they were right. getting high. And so that land was known for that. Is that Morocco and, across from Spain? Yeah, 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 Morocco. And um, thank you for that. And, and, and it said that when he went to Tarshish with these ships, that he could get, you know, uh, apes and gold and, um, and other goodies. Now, he didn't actually have to mine it there. He just traded for it with various other things that they took uh, to trade. Uh, and uh, that would have been part of North Africa, monkeys, you know, apes, um, gold. All of that could have come in from Egypt in that area and been traded in Morocco, more so than Spain. Um, Spain, you didn't see apes and various other things that were recorded as what he trade, traded for at, at Tarshish. Um, the, the ships of Tarshish were Phoenician ships, which were from the Lebanon, uh, and King David was really friends with the king of Tyre or, Leba, or Lebanon or Phoenicia at the time. And when he died, of course, Solomon took over, and it says the king of Tyre honored his uh, friend David by honoring his son Solomon when he took over. And he supplied him with ships and men to, to go from the Gulf of Aqaba out into the Indian Ocean, down to Ophir and over to Parvaim, and also ships, uh, Tarshish ships, to go to Tarshish in the, the western part of the Mediterranean there in Morocco. These ships were, uh, you know, kind of the corvettes of the time because they had a big single square sail. Right. They had at least one row of rowers, so they had a powered, man-powered and wind-powered boat that would carry large cargoes. So... You know, all these mysteries fall into place just looking for the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. But, but the Garden of Eden, for this to have worked, all the continents had to be together because whoever told the story, wrote it down on clay tablets or however they recorded and eventually got it into the hands of Moses, they were talking first person from a position of a person standing in northwest Africa looking wow. to the east toward the Garden of Eden. Right. And, and they saw rivers, not oceans. They saw rivers before everything split. And when I put it all back together and found out where 
Joktan uh, settled in northwest Africa, uh, well, above that actually, in, in some land masses connected to him. Uh, in the Hebrew, his name is not Joktan. The J becomes a Y and it becomes Yakitan. Ooh. And that's where the people of the Yucatan Peninsula came from. Right. I researched that. They have no idea why it's called the Yucatan Peninsula. But they have no idea who started building the pyramids, just like the ones in Egypt. Crap, this was connected to it over there. This was all part of the same landmass. Right, right. Sorry, pardon my French, but you know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, <laughs> no, totally. I, I, I just nearly fell off my chair when it started to make so much sense about the, the, the things that, that historians, archaeologists could not rationalize about where this came from, how the pyramids appeared over there. They were all on the same landmass and had the same knowledge base before the split of Pangaea. Right. And this is just telling you right now, the, the, the Pangaea split up didn't occur hundreds of millions of years ago. It was within human recorded history. And it was a cataclysmic event for yep. the most part instead yep. of a, a, a long duration. That's yep. amazing. So have you calculated the size of the Garden of Eden? Yeah, um, the main portion, uh, the, the, the crater where Adam and Eve were uh, created... Um, is 100.2 square miles, depending upon what you consider you know, the edge of it there at the base uh, or the, the walls of the crater. Wow. Um, the complex that surrounds it and, and uh, encases it uh, is about oh, 134 to 150 square miles, to be, again, depending on how you outline the, end of, or the lower end of a volcanic uh, shield. But, right. Um, oh, yeah, that's another point. Uh, people were saying, you know, you read the Bible and it says, and God put a flaming sword and, a right. cher- and cherubim to, you know, guard the path uh, to Eden. And right. people said, right, you can't go back to Eden. And I said, wait a minute, maybe you couldn't. Maybe you couldn't. But once Jesus paid the sacrifice, the sin was paid for, and we can go back. It's allowed. Okay, they said, yeah, but what about the flaming sword and, and um, you know, the cherubim? And I, I said, well, if you look into the um, uh, translators' opinions of what cherub, cherubim, comes from, it can be from, uh, you know, a, a mighty, you know, marshal from, from God, like a super-powered being, which in modern uh, usage of Hebrew it, it is, or in the ancient form it was something big and powerful. And the flaming sword has two meanings, the ancient meaning being spiraling, sparkling fire, vortex, spinning fire. Spinning fire from big things, volcanoes. (laughs) And it's plural. It doesn't say one or two. It says plural. And if you look to the east of the Garden of Eden, from Kilimanjaro all around there, there's at least 22 volcanoes, and the earth got hot there, and surprise, surprise, there's one volcano connected to the top end of the water supply there to the Garden of Eden. And that mountain has been erupting continuously since God created the Garden of Eden or before. Wow. It is the only volcano of this kind in the world. It's a natron volcano. And you can actually camp on a tent, you know, a tent up on top of this mountain called Oldoño Lenai, which means the mountain of God in the local language of the, the tribes. You can camp on the top of it and watch the eruption happen just, you know, a few hundred meters away, yeah. because it's slow, low-temperature magma eruptions. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, it's, uh, it's about 500 degrees Celsius, which is half what a normal volcano temperature would be. And you have to see it at night to even see the glow of the magma, right. of the lava. And when it comes up, it cools in the air. And within a few days or less, it cools, fractures, and falls into a heap of dust. The dust is whitish. And get this, this is irony. 
17% of that white natron emission is Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> yeah, that's God's Alka-Seltzer to the world right there next to the garden. <laughs> that's pretty uh, funny. That's cool, hey. <laughs> wow. So you, so one could literally not enter the Garden of Eden ap- after this volcano starts erupting because of rivers of magma, basically, that would block your path and make it Im- literally impossible, especially no, no, for the ancient no, 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 being. No. Yeah, uh, that's another thing I forgot to say. Okay. Those, uh, when it said, it, it didn't say block the path, it said to okay. mark the path, ah. the way of Eden, to make sure that it's saved. In other words, here is the path to Eden for all generations to see, in other words. And it is uh, Kilimanjaro and the volcanoes, that field is directly east of the Garden of Eden, just as it says in the scripture, to the east he placed these things. Wow. And, and of course, look, archaeologists uh, are saying uh, within uh, something like four, four miles of the rim of, of the Garden of Eden is the old Dubai Gorge Museum, which the Leakeys founded, when they found the oldest hominid bones in the world. And over in the Omo Valley on the other side, a few more miles, but in part of western Ethiopia, is Omo Valley where they found the, the oldest woman. And if you look at the mitochondrial Eve uh, hypothesis, or theory, I guess now, of where all the genetic DNA models of the world came from through the mother line, and recently through the Adamic line as well, they find that Adamic Adam and Eve, they call them, came from the Omo Valley region right outside the Garden of Eden. Duh! I mean, <laughs> and if you go to the African tribes, they say, oh yeah, you know, you know, various names for the creator, the man was created here and the animals were created here in Africa. I have no problem with that. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just amazing the similarities and the uh, parallels between the scientific discoveries, quote-unquote, and uh, what you're finding out now, it just all fits together. It's amazing. Yeah, so science and the Bible can get along. I love it. That's I've always said that. Everybody <laughs> everybody argues with me, but that's, uh, that's uh, totally cool. Can, can you just, I mean, can you feel the excitement of this, you know, realizing it's there? You oh, know, it's amazing. It, to me, it just... You know, I, I thought I had a strong faith before, but this just, <laughs> just you know, underlines it. It's just no. really cool. Right. It totally, totally is. Now, let's talk for a moment, Mr. Standeo. When are you going to start packing up the tour buses and taking us over there? You know, uh, I'd do it tomorrow if I thought it was practical, but I think we have to wait until the Ebola scare passes because... Um, Tanzania is uh, scrutinizing people coming in from other countries in, in Africa for mm-hmm. Ebola. Mm. Um, and the other thing, which is probably even more pressing, is the rise of uh, uh, Islamic terrorism in the area. They're, they're trying to destabilize the Tanzanian government. Um, one guy at the conference suggested that, because you know, we talked about how could we organize tours over there, because there are, you know, a lot of tour companies that will organize and do organize safaris into the area, you know, with armed guards and that kind of stuff. But uh, they're, they're mainly you know, one guy, one gun. And so how would we protect uh, the, the American, uh, you know, European tourist from harm by the, the terrorists wanting to make a statement? Yeah. Because just, just uh, you know, one or two countries away up toward uh, uh, Egypt there, but not you know, in the Sudan. 
they've been capturing, you know, uh, people and holding them hostage. Yeah. So uh, this is my concern, and I will actually. Uh, well, we've we've looked into hiring mercenaries, uh, you know, ex special forces or seals, to escort groups across like that, and uh, have explored how we would get uh, weapons to these guards, in essence. And as we went that way and started thinking about it, and and, and realized we're going to take a tour of of people into the middle of the Garden of Eden, armed to the teeth with stuff to blow it apart, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> Where's I was gonna say, <laughs> a, a busload of American Christians, probably a, a pretty tasty target for some yeah. uh, predatorial terrorist groups over there, mercenaries well, or not. I, I tried to, uh, I, I tried, I made press announcements, press releases to all the major TV networks, uh, many newspapers, uh, to National Geographic, to the History Channel, uh, to travel agencies uh, in in Africa that would profit from having that be the Garden of Eden. Right. And nobody is interested. Nobody. Mm. Wow. And that's just amazing because it would be such a a thing to have Islam, Christianity, uh, and actually even some of the Hindu faith, uh, you know, come to the Garden of Eden as a common ground. We yeah. all started there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Totally. Uh, so I am supporting UNESCO, uh, who who uh, are the custodians of it, in the in, in Goro and Goro Conservancy. I think that that should be strengthened, and that poaching should be definitely stopped. More money should be poured in protecting our greatest heritage on the planet. Yeah. Wow. Hum- human heritage. Yes. Sorry. Human heritage. Yes. Yeah. That's amazing. It's like the first wonder of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Now you've uh, before we started the the recording here, you'd mentioned you'd received a couple emails that are not favorable to your discovery. What were some of their points or refutations to you know th- this whole discovery? Or you know was it just you know you stand your nuts? Or was it just kind of an ad hominem thing? Oh, some some yeah. Uh, generaliz- generalization. One of them was, and the other was that uh, I was so wrong because obviously the Earth, uh, you know, the, the plate tectonic thing took thousands and millions of years. Sorry, millions right. or thousands, and um, it was basically on that. And these were from angry people who really didn't do any research. They just wanted to strike out because it hit at their core values. Right. But with the exception of two or three of those kind of things, I got so much supporting uh, information and. Uh, you know, um, encouragement from people that, uh, you know, I, I'm just overwhelmed. Uh, really. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's an interesting thing because a lot of, uh, I'll just speak mainly with Christians, but it applies all over the place. When it comes to things of the Bible and making modern discoveries uh, about them or regarding them, a lot of times there's this sort of feeling of like, Oh, well, you can't find the Garden of Eden. That's impossible because that would take all the mystery out of the Bible. You know what I mean? Like they want to keep believing that what they read in the Bible is so, uh, so far into antiquity and has been so shrouded by the, you know, evil modern, uh, world or geography or whatever, um, that to, to even find the Garden of Eden is, is borderline heretical. You know, I agree. And one of the emails I got said, obviously you're wrong, because it was in the, the plain of Shinar between Iraq and Iran, and the, 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 the mud of the waters of the flood covered it up, so you'll never find it. 
Right. So then I looked into the internet and said, well, who else thinks they know where the Garden of Eden is? Well, the Chinese, modern Chinese report, placed it between uh, Greenland and the North Pole somewhere. Uh, huh. One, uh, you know, uh, one other source, in fact, several other sources put it on the Temple Mount in Israel. And then the, the, the coolest one was from um, the, the Latter-day Saints Church in Missouri, and they, they put it there. Uh, in, in, in Missouri, uh, let's see, where <laughs> Jackson County or something like that, uh, and they put the Garden of Eden there. And the Missouri. There. Yeah, that would, I thought, That would make right, a good okay. state slogan. The Eden State. <laughs> you bet, you I'll bet. do some great work for the tourism over there. Yeah, but anyway, <laughs> I, I, I think this is probably why mainstream uh, news uh, media have kind of went, oh, yawn, not another one. Right. And w- without bothering uh, to, to see my argument, because I was quite happy to start, you know, sharing the details of how mm-hmm. I located it. But we're, we're working on the DVD now with Sam, and um, that should be ready first week of October. And as I say, I'm putting a lot of extra stuff that wasn't in the lecture. It just wasn't time to put it in. Right. In, into a CD-ROM that will be a companion we'll send out with it. Um, and, and just, it will allow you to just, get into Google Earth and fly over all this stuff and see it. Yeah, right. Uh, I, I couldn't put the Google Earth things in because of copyright problems. And I'm not, you know, casting aspersions against Google Earth for this because uh, it was a, a decision that their legal department made, in, and that was that I would fly over so many areas whose data they have taken from NASA or JPL or mm. this country, a company or that one, they couldn't get copyright clearances for all of them, mm. and so I couldn't do it. However, I can put out a CD-ROM with KMC or KML files that you can plug into Google Earth yourself mm. and see exactly what I would have shown on the screen, but see it firsthand with Google Earth and be able to move your mouse around and fly around the garden and fly over rivers and see how long they are. And, you know, just, wow, right. just cool stuff. Now, we... We have an idea of what the Garden of Eden looks like in a biblical sense described in the text. Can you give us any idea of what it kind of looks like now? I mean, it, if we go hang out there, is it just going to be an amazing utopia of no. uh, nature and creation, or has it uh, taken no, it's, a downturn? It, it's, it's taken a hit. Um, it, um, the, um, the thing is circular-shaped. It's a, a circular, uh, collapsed uh, volcanic crater, mm-hmm. and uh, there are water ponds in there they're fed by rains and stuff now then and can flow down the hills into the into the garden there are forests at the north and south end forest of um you know acacia different types of acacia trees uh there is uh, there are a couple of types of uh, of fig trees there and one of them is called the quinine fig and it's got long leathery leaves about 10 inches long two inches wide mm. and you can sew those together to make you know, clothing, which is what oh. the Bible says Adam and Eve uh, wore there, and then leather skins eventually after that, which God made for them. Right. Um, uh, you so it's see- not it's not like a journey to the center of the earth type situation where you step into this crater and there's dinosaurs and uh, mm. flying, glowing jellyfish and things no. like that. No. Is no, there any? Are there any inhabitants? Yeah, there are. Uh, actually, you can get in and out of the crater up a couple of trails that are there now, one on the east side and I think another one on the, south, uh, the west side. Mm-hmm. And the Maasai, who live nearby, uh, go in there on a daily basis and take their cattle up these paths down into the crater and let them graze on mm. the, the lush lands there. 
but they have to take him out at night. They aren't allowed to, to dwell there because the Conservancy has now stopped all you know occupation or, or living in the crater. But there are like over 25,000 large mammals living there now. Elephants, rhinoceros, black and white rhinoceros, um, ostriches, um, sorry, uh, um, the pink flamingos, there's tens of thousands of those. Right. Um, birds, a lot of birds, um, colorful ones, uh, strange ones. Now, this, con- this conservancy that you speak of, is this like just a standard uh, African wildlife conservancy or? Um, oh, good question. Yeah. There are two. There's the African Conservancy, and then there's the UNESCO Conservancy, and they fight with each over with each other over control of the uh, Serengeti Plain and the uh, Ngoro Crater, which is, of course, Garden of Eden now. Um, but between the two of them, they're doing their best to to preserve it. And I really think we ought to get a unified, you know, uh, uh, agenda on this between the two, or turn it over to a third party with more more uh, strength and. Right. Uh, and and protect it. Um, there are just lots of life forms in there: uh, lions, uh, tigers, gazelles. Uh, Thompson's gazelle is one of the prominent ones there. Um, you can see these things. I mean, people. Uh, probably half a million people a year have been touring the Ngoro Crater hmm. without knowing it was a Garden of Eden. I mean, uh, Prince Charles and his boys went. Uh, the Vice President of China went there a few months ago. Uh, you know uh, the. Um, President Clinton and his family went there. Just, hmm. you know, it's kind of the done thing, you know, this, this, they call it Africa's last Garden of Eden. Well, uh, duh. <laughs> the Garden of Eden. And now that I can prove it, you'd think that the, 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 there are some hotels that are built on the rim so you can stay there overnight and look out over the Garden of Eden. And some of them are, are fairly well priced. I mean, like, $1,500 a night per person. I mean, <laughs> they're very proud of it. But there are more economic things around the area where you can stay. But you'd think that all these people would jump at the opportunity to prove what it is because it would just put tourism or value through the roof. Right. And to that end, the African Conservancy Group for it have said, look, we want an embargo on any more hotel building around the rim. That's enough. We don't want to ruin it any more than it is. And we want to be sure that trash is picked up when people go through on safari in these jeeps along the trails that we'll let you do. Yeah. You know, keep it preserved. And I agree with that. And, and you know, even if the locals make money out of it, it doesn't bother me because that country houses the poorest people in all of Africa. Right. You know, and uh, gee whiz. Yeah. yeah. I, You're I talking it. about the hotels and stuff. And I don't know, maybe this is just a stretch that I'm making and just making weird connections in my mind, but it kind of reminds me of, uh, have you read the series Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Oh, absolutely. 42, 42. Yeah, it kind of, it kind of reminds me of uh, the restaurant at the end of the universe where, yeah. you know, you can just sort of sit in your nice hotel and eat a, eat a dinner <laughs> and sort of look out over the sort of desolate, not desolate, but the, the the remains of this sort of holy, just unimaginably important site um, while you're, you know, eating a brisket or something and, yeah. and not fully, yeah. like, even comprehend what's going on around you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you look over your shoulder for Zephod Babelbrox. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Guy with a couple yeah, of heads. I, I love that, yeah. Love that. Well, well it Don's, is like that. 
Gans, what are your thoughts, man? You f- I feel like your mind is just too blown over there. You're unable to <laughs> even comprehend. I'm, I'm just looking at, I'm, I'm on Google Earth right now checking out pictures. So that's, that's kind of just what I'm, I've are been those, doing. Are those files uh, with the coordinates available right now on your website, Stan? No, no, I'm going to put them in a CD-ROM. I'm still okay. working on them. I, I promised that the lecture I would do that. But mm-hmm. if you'll go... Uh, just, just look up on um, Google Earth, type in Ngoro, Ngoro, and it will take you to that crater. Dive down into the crater, get, you zoom in close, and turn on the pictures options or photos options, and you will see pictures taken by tourists in there in the, in the hundreds all over the inside of the crater. Right. And uh, we're, I'm actually writing a script for a uh, travel uh, uh, company in Florida, uh, they're going to send a team over to uh, f- make a documentary in, in Goro in December. And oh. they're actually thinking about filming it in 3D as well. Ooh, that'd yeah, be it's, fun. It's, it's quite incredible. And, and just for people who uh, are going to look for that, Ngoro is spelled N-G-O-R-O-N-G-O-R-O, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, to, to make it easy to pronounce, I divide it in two and call it Ngoro. Ngoro, and the locals call it Ngoro, you know, like that. But it's two words run together, and it means uh, big holes in the ground. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> so know, practical with their titles. Yeah. It just it just amazes me that in this day and age, you can get on your computer, you can go to a website, and explore in pictures and in satellite images the birthplace of creation. I mean, it's just amazing. It is. You can just dive right in without leaving your house. So I recommend everybody make sure to pick up uh, Standeo's new little package he's coming out with. Well, look, you send us an email at standeo at standeo.com. If you're interested in that, I'll let you know when and what is out. And that way you can be assured that, you know, you won't miss out. There you go. Now, just as a question here and tying some, some different elements into this whole discovery, how does this tie into, in your mind... You know, some of the other things we've talked about in the past and, and, you know, are familiar with this show, with Bible prophecy, do you think that this has something to do with uh, the Daniel passages that talks about knowledge will increase? And, you know, I guess the second part of the question is, does it have anything to do with uh, some kind of great awakening or some kind of revival? You know, what are your hopes for, for people in general uh, with this whole discovery? And, and how does it tie to Bible prophecy in your mind? Well, you know, um, certainly Daniel talking about the increase in knowledge, which should be great, and the going to and fro, you know, traveling will be great in this time. I do think we're in that time, and I thank the good Lord that he allowed me to stumble upon the discovery of the Garden of Eden, because to, to Holly and I and to those that we've talked to at the lecture and uh, since then, it has been a renewal of their faith in incredible amounts, because it took the Garden of Eden out of the category of myth, to reality, right. yeah. and to you could go and touch the dirt that started the DNA in your own body right there. Wow. You know, I mean, I just, I still marvel at it, and I would love to go. If it were some way to, to make a safe journey there, I would go tomorrow, um, and if I could afford it. But uh, the point is that this could be a part of, 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 the, of the end times where there's one last great revival because of the solidification or the firming of the faith of, of the church across the planet. And, uh, you know, I think there are some Muslims that actually, you know, 
treat, you know, that Abraham's their father, their progenitor, that would uh, benefit from this as well, and 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 turn to the Messiah rather mm-hmm. than to you know what they do. Right. Um, it, it may be a catalyst, uh, and that may be why mainstream media refusing to to put it out there uh, yeah. for their own agenda. Uh, I don't know, but. I just, you know, I am just so enthused over it, you know, uh, that you want to run out in the street and yell like Archimedes, you know, I found it, I found it, it's there, Eureka, you know? Yeah. Uh, you uh, know, and, and it's amazing that it's uh, not being covered right now, and, and maybe it will in the future, you know, when, it, when you get it out, you know, a little bit more on uh, mediums like ours, um, that they'll really latch onto it, because... I can totally see that being on, you know, Fox or CNN or whatever. I mean, in in whatever capacity they would present the information. I mean, I can totally see it right now. You know, man man finds biblical Garden of Eden, and then uh, you know, let's go to our Skype connection with Doctor Stan Dale. Oh, Doctor, that'd be good. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, somebody will give somebody will give you some sort of honorary doctorate for that hopefully here oh well i don't know I'm, about that but uh, i'm waiting third. for my honorary i have not gotten it yet <laughs> is that honorary or honorary oh i don't know <laughs> both both yeah. in our case i think oh wow man this is just you know i i hope we can somehow get groups going over there and knowing what it is i mean certainly our film crew will be going over there in december but uh right. if, you know if if things hold together that long in the world, but uh, it, it would be such a focus point for all the major religions of the world to see and understand, you know? Uh, <laughs> this sigh. <laughs> um, yeah, no, totally. And, you know, we'll have you back when, uh, you know, maybe after the film crew gets to go in and uh, do their business and, you know, hopefully this will take off and then we can uh, all feel so blessed that you were able to come on this show and share it with our listeners before you know the the mainstream came around and made it cool <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> spelled with a k-e-w-l cool. yeah cool <laughs> yes oh yes. uh, you have a vast knowledge of the uh, internet lingo there Okay, well, is there anything else that you want to leave us with? Anything that you were just waiting for Gons or I to bring up? Um, probably not for you to bring up. There, There is one other thing that I forgot uh, that this Garden of Eden discovery does solve in archaeology. Okay. And that is the problem of the dinosaurs. Um, the bone structure of the dinosaurs they've been doing calculations now for a number of years and they can't see how the dinosaurs could have supported their own weight and run or do anything because the bone structure would have collapsed and fractured under their weight okay but when you calculate that the earth was 20 percent smaller than it is now Mm. and calculate the change in centrifugal force which neutralizes part of gravity the change in gravity would have put down put gravity down to one third what it is now, and the dinosaurs could then exist and run. Mm. Well, there mm. you go. Interesting. More pieces of the puzzle coming together. Yep. If, when you say the Earth was twenty percent smaller, now we talked about some of the expansion ideas earlier. 
But where does some of that water come from? Was the water just condensed differently, or, or how does that whole there, thing tie in? The Bible does say that in the beginning there was the waters above the firmament and the waters below, and the firmament being the right. land. Right. Now, I don't think Pangaea covered the whole surface of the earth at that time. Uh, I, there might have been, you know, uh, small oceans around it or large oceans, as the case may be, if you put Pangaea together and, and subtract that from the surface area of a planet that's, you know, 20% smaller. But there was also, I'm pretty sure, a canopy of water, water vapor above us, which allowed the ancients to be able to look with the unaided eye through a lens of water vapor and see right. stars much closer than they are now because of the magnification effect. Right. Um, before the time of the flood, the earth, especially at the time of the Garden of Eden, the earth was not watered by rain. They didn't have rain. The water came up as a mist from the ground and through, you know, that also shows it came up like a, like a fissure, you know, squirting mm -hmm. up and also by evaporation, uh, or sorry, by condensation as it came up like dew overnight from the ground. Right. But then after the flood, several things happened at the flood. The canopy collapsed, there was rain, um, and clouds formed, and rainbow formed, which was not possible until we had clouds. The uh, waters of the deep, or the fountains of the deep, were broken up. And um, the, the waters of the deep in Hebrew were hot as they shot up from vents underneath the seafloor mm -hmm. as the core was expanding of the earth. And it took probably several hundred years for the core to completely expand at present uh, you know, diameter you know, for the whole planet. Right. But the water that was in a layer underneath the earth was squeezed up, uh, was squeezed up until it um, punched through the earth's uh, surface at the, the bottoms of the oceans. Um, the... Um, uh, the water layer today, there's one that's about 400 miles deep or thick. They have found that there's a huge amount of water equal to all the oceans plus some underneath the earth in this special kind of uh, uh, rock formation that under pressure releases the water, under great pressure. Right. And there's the Moho discontinuity, just 5 to 15 miles thick underneath the, the surface of the earth now, that has water in it that's very salty. It's about 3.2 times the density of normal water. So when you put all these factors together... Uh, there was water in the upper atmosphere, a certain amount, not enough to make all the flood, but the waters that were beneath the surface that were squeezed out as the planet expanded, you know, the hot water and forming in the fountains of the deep, that provided the water for the flood. And then, right. of course, a lot of that sank back in. Right. You know, it's interesting going back to talking about the gravity and uh, the dinosaurs and everything like that. And you talk about the expansion of the Earth. However, uh, how modern science sees it, uh, gravity is related to the amount of mass um, contained within an object. And the simple expansion of the Earth uh, theoretically would not increase the gravitational pull. However, if you take into account the canopy of water floating above, well, you know, mm -hmm. in qu air quotes, floating above the, uh, the atmosphere, up in the atmosphere, when that falls... And uh, the canopy that was once containing the entire Earth um, falls and becomes part of the amount of mass creating the gravity for the Earth. That could account for some of the increased gravity, um, adding all the mass of that liquid. Oh, probably a small amount, because uh, even though it was in orbit, you know, uh, slightly above the surface, it was all still part of the gravitational field. 
Um, mm. As the Earth was smaller, the gravity on the surface was less because the spin of the planet increased, and that's the centrifugal balance against the gravitational field. Right. As the planet expands on the surface, the gravity uh, becomes stronger. Um, but it, it's the same mass. It's just the right. effect of gravity at that, that, that it's distance the placement. from the radius. Right, well, okay. If the, right, okay. And if, if, but if the water is above the heads of the dinosaurs... Um, whatever gravity would be affected by the canopy, would that not, uh, not affect the dinosaurs? Because they're not necessarily standing on top of the liquid in the, in the atmosphere. Yeah, look, I, I don't think there was that much in the canopy compared mm. to oceans and things, and I don't think it would have, it would have had some effect, but right. I don't think it would be enough to you know, alter the uh, 0.34 uh, gravitational field at that Got time. It. Got it. Um, that's why those leather-winged um, pedactyls, I think you're called anyway, there's a whole class of leather birds uh, that could fly as dinosaurs. And um, they had a, a thicker atmosphere, and they had a, a lower gravity. And so it explains how they could fly and uh, do what they did, you know. Uh, you know, I always wondered about that. <laughs> they always seemed a little bit... Something some fishy about those pterodactyls. <laughs> well, I mean, I think what we tend to do, and this is a word that I've brought up a couple times in different conversations with people, but uniformitarianism, this idea that everything in the earth as we see it right now has always been the same all the way going back. And that, that sort of perspective and formula doesn't always work. But uh, there's a passage that I'm reminded of uh, in Genesis 10, uh, over in verse 25 there, it talks about uh, unto Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days was the earth divided. Uh, is that just talking about the people of the earth divided in different languages? Or do you think there was some kind of, uh, you know, earth divided meaning, some kind of catastrophic? I think, that it was, I think it was the, the, the catastrophic earth dividing. He, I mean, he came, he was born after uh, uh, the flood. And using his lifetime related to a flood event in 2345 B.C., somewhere between that time and 2100 B.C., the earth uh, would have split in his lifetime right. or the continents. And I think it does occur to that, uh, does refer to that, because, uh, well, yeah, maybe. Uh, I know that Nimrod built the tower. You know, he, he was part of Ham's descendants, and he was in the wrong place. He was over in Shem's territory there in Iran. Right. Or, you know, uh, you know, Iran. And um, it, it's just, I, I can't decide, but I do know that uh, the, uh, uh, the Earth would well have been split apart by the catastrophic impact of a, of a meteor uh, at the round 2345 BC, which is when the Earth's tilt started, you know, the 23.5 degree tilt. And the, the uh, Dodwell equation does prove that, uh, the astronomer Dodwell. Um, but uh, did it occur in that year? Did it occur later uh, as the masses slowly split apart, you know, over 150 to 200 years and then fall into the time of Peleg? I don't know. I, I'm not sure how I can answer that question yet without more data somewhere. Sure, yeah. And I, I know that yeah. there's some uh, Ethiopic translations that the word Peleg or Peleg comes from ravine or stream canal which you know that idea that some sort of water formation split the land um, yeah yeah so i mean there's i guess there's some mysteries to be solved yet 
Oh, a few. A few. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, that's well, this all. Is, I'm, I'm, <laughs> that's all, folks. Well, Stan, once again, this has just been a fantastic conversation. I love having you on the show. I love you as a dude. And um, I hope that you'll be back again. Why don't you shoot over your email and your website and everything one more time so everybody listening knows where to go to get more information well the email address is um, standeo at standeo.com and uh, of course that is hooked up to the website at standeo.com where you see what we're up to at the time there you go and make sure to go check out his website for all the pictures we were talking about today and all the articles we are referencing and uh, I think maybe if it's okay we'll throw a couple of those uh pictures just into the show notes so you can sure take a look at that there we go and uh all right so there you have it everybody standeo thanks again one more time thank you guys have a good one you too buddy we'll talk to you soon all righty bye-bye bye that man gons mr standeo you're long lost my fatherly brotherly uncle (laughs) i feel I just feel such a connection with that guy. You know, he's really, really spot on, you know. Then that's not something that happens all the time. Canary <laughs> Radio. from us. always you know, oh, missing All the time. So, yeah, very good interview. I'm really glad we got him on again, and hopefully we can do that again. Hopefully, yep. Yeah, hopefully. Um. <laughs> hopefully everybody out there listening also enjoyed, as much as I did, uh, you know, yeah, I guess I guess I could just do this all for me, but uh. <laughs> well, yeah, and you can also go back to episode number zero four six, and that was our first interview with Standeo, and that one was longer and stories of UFOs and yeah. alien creatures, and it was just all over the place. So definitely yeah. check that out. You can go to CanaryCryRadio.com, and if you scroll down, you'll find a little search bar where you can just type in Standale and it'll pull right up. And um, Boom. you'll see Magic. another couple boxes there. Yeah. Uh, a little place you can fill in some stuff. You want to tell them about that? Yeah, Basil? sure. Some of you have already discovered it, even without Gons and I telling you about it. But we thought... Well, mostly um, because we have a giant pop-up that pops in your face, too. Right. We have a giant pop-up. Uh, so, you know, you discovering it is not that impressive. Sorry, fellas uh, and ladies. <laughs> but... What we're doing is we have an official email list, okay? Now, we've done, we've had like a newslettery kind of thing before, uh, and it just kind of just didn't really work out as how we wanted it to. But now we are born anew. We have the Canary Cry Radio email list. And if you pop in your email there, some of you already know that you will receive an awesome recorded message from Gons and I. Now, we decided instead of putting together long text treasure troves for people to sort of sift through, we just decided to do it the, you know, do, do what we do. Yep. We're just talking to microphones. Yeah, it's we're talking to microphones. Than, than writing so, something out. Right, so if you sign up for that email list on canarycryradio.com, you will receive at least once a month. Gons is very optimistic in thinking that we can do it once a week, but I will curb your expectations and say at least once a month, you will receive a extra bonus sort of thing from Gons and I. 
And, uh, you know, there'll be, what, what do we have in there? We have all sorts of good stuff. Well, we'll, we, we'll, have, we have us talking, which is always great. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll give some tips on future guests that we're going to have on. Tips. Like for ex- tips. What tips. did I say? No, you said tips. I was just repeating you. Oh, for example, this Sandeo episode, the people that were on the email list before, they knew. They saw they it coming. Knew. They saw it coming. Weeks in advance. I know. Oh, so they can study up. They can check out what Stan Dale's up to even before, you know, they get to listen to it again here. Now, not only that, but, you know, there's a lot of personal stuff between me and Gons on there. There's occasionally a rant or two. What else is there? There's other stuff. There's all sorts of stuff. Yeah, we'll kind of wing it. <laughs> yeah, we totally wing it. We Sometimes we'll throw some news in there. Sometimes we'll throw maybe a, a spoken word slam poetry uh, session. Um, oh, we had a jam session last time. Well, okay. Let's oh, be clear oh, about oh, okay. this. Because, yes. All okay. right. This is where it deviates, everybody. It deviates a little bit. It becomes even more exclusive. We are okay. we are elitists over here at Canary Cry Radio. <laughs> yes. We are just going we to... We uh, believe almost... We, we adhere almost uh, none at all to equality. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get an email about that. Um, okay, so there's that awesome free email list. Now, in addition to that, there for those of you who have supported Canary Cry Radio financially, either with a generous one-time gift or you've signed up for a monthly uh, gift option of any amount, you are put on an extra special email list where you receive all the stuff we just talked about, me and Gons being awesome, giving you future updates, uh, doing other awesome things. This is the worst sales pitch ever. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you will also receive, at least once a month, another audio message from Gons and I uh, where there's more interaction you're able to learn about the guests coming up and allowed to send in your own questions or your own comments. And, uh, you know, if they're good. They'll make it on the show. Yeah. And, uh, well, the reason why we brought that up, the, the super, super exclusive email list, right. is because this first one we sent out, uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, we... Actually, Basil and I had a little jam session that we, we I don't think we've ever actually played no. music together before. I don't know, that if, was, I don't know if people, we, we've never played together at all. And then on top of that, I think, I don't think many people knew that we are, are so good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and oh, so gosh. there you go. I'm not saying it'll happen every time. <laughs> But let's just say the first time Gons and I got together and played way to music, be, way to be humble, was over Skype. That's true. Yep. And not even seeing each other, just audio Skype. Yeah. And anyways, we got a lot of good responses, not just from the music, but from this the whole experience. So, if you're interested in either of those awesome things being delivered right to your inbox. You don't even have to bother with iTunes or nothing. Go to Canary Cry Radio. You can sign up for our email list. There's a little pop-up and, or you can sign up, uh, I think it's at the bottom of every page. Yep. Right? And then, if you want to be part of the super special Canary Cry Radio Bestest Friends Club, (laughs) 
<laughs> you can go to Canary Cry Radio, click on the support tab, make a wonderful donation there and one time any wonderful amount you want, or you can sign up for a monthly gift. Uh, and I think there's a couple different levels of gifts there. And you will be automatically added to the awesome email Bestest Friends Club. Yes. And, you yeah. know, uh, just, just as a kind of a side note here, we've been also receiving positive responses, comments, and you guys have really been answering the call to the iTunes reading yeah. ratings and review thing. And we yeah. really appreciate that. We're up to 174 ratings and reviews. It's pretty good. I'm pretty impressed. I'm very excited about that. Now, however, yeah, it has however, slowed down. However, 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 there, you do there's, the however. there's, there's a couple atheists shows out there, which, you know, whatever, that's fine. But, <laughs> but there, there's this one show. I'm not going to mention the name of the show, but they have been around, I think, about the same length as we have. They have roughly the same number of episodes, and they have, like, over double the number of ratings and reviews. Ugh. And I'm going, the atheists are killing the... And, you know, the, the thing is, though, that's really funny, is a lot of the Christian shows out there, there's just, like, no reviews. Like, uh, our, our friends over at, uh, you know, View from the Bunker, PID Radio, they don't have that many reviews. Right. Revelations Radio News and Network, they don't have that many reviews. Right. Uh, Natalina, you know, Beyond Extraordinary Podcast, she's got, you know, just a handful. Uh, come on, folks. Okay. So <laughs> this, this is, is a the call, a call to action for all you Christ-minded folk out there. The non-believing community is very vocal on the uh, online platforms rating and reviewing and giving props to the people who are, you know, these are some pretty harsh podcasts, actually. You listen to them. They're not yeah, friendly. Yeah, they're not friendly at not all. Not friendly to people like us. So if you are a Christ-minded folk and you enjoy Canary Cry Radio or any of the other Christian podcasts at all, I can speak for all of the podcasters in the Christian community that we would so, so feel empowered and blessed and we just really feel you guys were on our side. If you go to the iTunes page for any of the shows that you listen to, make sure to leave a rating and leave a review. And you would be so surprised to know not only, A, it makes us feel good, gives us the... uh the encouragement that we need to keep doing the good work here, but also it helps other people find the podcasts, helps the message of Christ get out, and overall is going to help humanity. Yeah. Boom. Absolutely. And uh, again, I bring up Mr. Joel Osteen. Joel yeah. Osteen Ministries. He's dominating right. the Christian or religion and <laughs> spirituality uh, right. Category with over three thousand reviews of three thousand. Yeah, wow. maybe maybe we just drop this whole Nephilim and, and Bible yeah. prophecy thing. This we whole just, niche is we just, just we just not... tell people that that just life is going to be it, it's it, you're your best life now <laughs> today. Your best life now. Just grab it. <laughs> Um, okay, nothing against Joel. No, no, nothing against Joel. Man Osteen, of God. Other, other but, than some of his theology, but we're but, <laughs> but if you're enjoying <laughs> and you feel empowered and blessed by the Christian podcast community, especially those 
uh, weirdos like us here at Canary Guy Radio. And uh, maybe weirdos not. unite. You weirdos unite. Okay, we've talked about this a lot. So please, there you go. Ratings and reviews, yeah, iTunes, you guys Stitcher, are probably not listening everywhere anymore. you go. I know. <laughs> I don't think everybody turned this off a while ago. Yeah. Um, but that is a very heartfelt plea. All right. Well, anything else, Bucko? Uh, <laughs> Bucko. <laughs> No, that's well, well, well. Let me let me just mention this, just because, you know, since we're on this like okay downward spiral so, of pitches, just do it. We'll just let it keep rolling. Theprophecyforum.com is relaunched. Myself, Douglas Woodward, John Holler, Doug Krieger, and uh, Gary Winkleman. We have launched this uh, or relaunched, I suppose, the Prophecy Forum. Uh-huh. You can go to theprophecyforum.com to check out what we're about there. Right. Uh, we're looking to raise some cash there to make things happen. Our first conference is going to be in Dublin, Ohio. Um, this is just because this is where John Holler that's, is located. And, that's an uh, interesting place. Well, you know, we basically just want to, uh, you know, we want to we want to go to a place where you know, the sports capital of the United States right now. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> and. Uh, but the thing is, our main focus is going to be on live streaming. So that will be available to you. And we'll, we'll give you guys more information on that. And we may even bring on some of the guys to talk about it in the very near future. So okay. there you go. Sounds That's it. Good. Wonderful. All right. There you go, everybody. Make sure to do that. Now let's wrap it up, wrap it up, wrap it up, wrap it up, wrap it up. Thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Canary Cry Radio. Make sure to tune in next time. Until then. Think outside the cage.